you, you should at some point tell people that you're not Jacqueline. Yeah. That'd be, how do y'all usually start the show? <laughs> we just start, just jump into bullshitting and not unlike we, what we've already done by talking about The Little Mermaid and me going, ah, la, la. <laughs> I really hope that recorded. Okay. What are we, what do you want to We could also bust today? into to more mermaid songs under the sea. I can definitely do the, look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? <laughs> Which is how I feel as I'm downloading all the things that come with recording a podcast. <laughs> hey, I'm not Jacqueline. I'm Sam. And I'm in the Austin office in a photo booth. Or not a photo booth. Oh, that would be so much more fun. You did take a picture of us. I did. I I took a picture of us because neither of us can see each other's faces because we're behind microphones. Yep. We'll have to add it to the show notes. Yeah. What have you been doing the last few weeks? (laughs) Uh, The last two weeks, I have been in a lot of user testing for prototypes uh, for a client where we have two different sides of their product. They've got different features and two different products that the users can be be a part of and they're able to sell them as one thing together or separately based on it's a b2b product so they're able to kind of work and customize it based on what a company needs so we've been doing a lot of user testing on that front which has been really exciting we got to use some online tools to help us kind of schedule and work through the logistics of that and from that, we took all of our, our stuff last week and sort of made the, what did we learn? What is the end sort of report of this phase of user testing that we had three days of it? And yeah, that was a lot of last week. And this week, we started to make some of those changes and get into the code base and work with uh, engineers who are on the, on the client side. And it was really excited to commit and then push all the things this week. So... That's sort of what I'm working on. Lots of user tests and tiny tweaks for now. You mentioned some tools that you were using? Yeah. um, Eric, who's our designer in Boston, um, had heard about a website, userinterviews.com, that helps kind of just with the logistical side of scheduling, screening, sending out you know, Amazon gift cards is compensation at the end of it, which is something we were doing manually for the first two rounds of interviews. And that took so much time. So we thought for the third round, we'd test this out and see if it works. And it saved us so much time. Like, it's amazing how much time it saved us. And we were able to get a really interesting group of people. They were screened through the questions that we set up to see if they were kind of the right user for for the product. We were able to set, you know, all of our technical requirements, like you have to have a Google account to be on Hangouts. You have to be willing to share your screen all that sort of good stuff, you know, a decent internet connection. So yeah, it just took care of all the logistics for us, which is really nice. So that was userinterviews.com. Nice. And so for those, how did you and Eric kind of come up with a script? Like what were you going into those user interviews with? Uh, that's a great question. So we sort of broke it up into three different days of interviews that sort of focused on different things. And I say days, but some of them were like half days over two days and and things like that, just based on scheduling. But we had three phases of user testing. One was the existing product. One was focusing on a prototype of one part of their product. And then the third phase was the second part of their product, focusing on the prototype that we had worked on. 
And we wanted to write scripts. We talked with a lot of other ThoughtBot staff about sort of what they did in past interviews, what they learned along the way. And I think one of the most important things that we learned was setting the tone of, like, they're not going to make mistakes. It's for us to learn what we could be improving in that product and making it better. So we're not testing them like every other test that they've had in their life about, you know, right or wrong answer. This is really about seeing what we can learn, where they intuitively want to go so that there's really not a wrong choice that they can that they can make. So setting that sort of tone and then what we did was we worked with our client to work through assumptions. We did a design sprint which you led and we worked through Maybe assumptions we had based on user feedback in the past or from people who have been a part of this product for a really long time, us as designers coming in and maybe having assumptions about things we know that may or may not work, sort of general good design practices and putting together a list of questions as people went through the product to then sort of ask them. And it's really interesting to try to put these questions together because when you are working off of assumptions that you're making, it's very easy to write leading questions. Uh, Leading questions being the type of questions that lead you to a very specific set of answers or one specific answer to sort of confirm what you already assumed, but to write them in more general terms. So I think like a good example would be of course now I can't think of an example, but like (laughs) tell us what you see on this page. That would be an example of something that's not leading them to necessarily like it or not like it. Uh, Sometimes when you say, tell us what you like about this page or tell us what you don't like about this page, even though that's still more general than more leading questions, that is making the assumption that they like or dislike something about the page. Rather than asking the question like, tell us your thoughts about the page that doesn't have that distinction. Yeah, my favorite leading question that lots of clients always want to ask is, would you pay for this? I'm like, no matter what their answer is, you're not going to get their true answer until you have money in your hand or money not in your hand, uh, essentially. Right. Until they hit the pay button and there is a real transaction, you're not going to really know. And so that, will you pay for this is usually one of the, I guess, token, you know, leading questions that I always see, like Mm -hmm. every client asks for that. The script that we have at the beginning, jumping kind of back to earlier and what we were talking about, most of that has come from a book called Rocket Surgery Made Easy. By Steve Krug. Yeah, which is a really good intro book on, on like how to do interviews, usability tests. That book in general is really good, but the the resources that that book has is, is really good too. Through that, like one of the things that you said was, you know, we're testing our app and not you. I think that's really important to say. It's also important to me that we call them usability tests and not user tests. I think there's a big distinction there. I always cringe a little bit when I see people say user test. I know their heart is in the right place, but it's language. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I definitely said that about six times just in answering your last question, but I couldn't see you cringe because you were behind the microphone. No, I don't think you did. I think I think you made it through the. I mean, I still slip up all the time. And and it's one of those things that as soon as I do, I like I like, oh, no, I didn't. I didn't mean that. Like font and typeface. (laughs) I've trained my (laughs) wife to like she says the right thing now. 
Which is I, nice. Yeah, I've definitely done that with all my friends for <laughs> sure so many times. Train them on the difference between what is a font and what is a typeface. Yeah. It's sort of like a screening test to be my friend. <laughs> you, have to, you have to get this usage right. <laughs> I like that you you come to them with like this form that they have to fill out. What are the other conditions for your friendship? The, uh, <laughs> must like dogs. <laughs> it's like dogs and know the difference between typeface and yeah. font. Nice. Pretty much. Please return the clipboard to the front after you're done. Thank you. <laughs> So you went into these interviews based off of the design sprint with the assumptions that we made in the design sprint, making sure that you're not asking leading questions. What were some of the the bigger things that you found out during the interviews? Like, was there any like aha moment or like, oh shit moment? Like, or probably both. Like I usually go into interviews, especially with a prototype that we've done over the course of a, a day or two, like with like a oh my God, I, like, I'm wondering like, what's going to blow up in my face and what's, what's going to be like, oh, that's the thing that we need to build. And usually it's like, there's, there's usually both. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think I tried to go into this as open-minded as possible, thinking they're really going to be focused on just this app. They're maybe not going to come in with that, like, I think it's called like ethnographic background, the things in our lives that sort of just seep into everything that we do, the kind of background knowledge that we have. And I wasn't expecting as much of that because this was such a controlled environment where they have someone interviewing them, a group of other people listening in from our team and from the client's team. Um, So I figured none of that stuff would have time to seep into it. And this is a financially related app that relates to some data you know, needs here and there. And it was really interesting, or most surprising to me, two different parts. One, how much data awareness and privacy came up from the user. Uh, That was something we had made an assumption about. And it was not only confirmed, it was just really, really supported in terms of they wanted to know where that information is going, who can see it, because it has to do with their financial history. And the other side of it was how much other apps that they use online that require information from them seeped into how they think an app should work, whether it was a correct or or maybe not correct, ethical or unethical pattern from this other app, how that seeps into this. So like an example is they compared it to, well, when I log into Mint, it asks me if I want to see my credit score for free every month. So where is that button here? Just because it's financially related. So them wanting to see that same feature here because they're so used to using Mint or are conditioned to think that this financial app that I've used for this very long time that has years and years of my transaction history gives me this thing. Why aren't you giving me this thing? And I think we've seen that with a lot of like Facebook and Twitter comparisons. Like I can edit my Facebook post. Why can't I edit my tweet? So I that makes a lot of sense. It was just surprising to get to that level of comparison to something else when that what it's being compared to isn't a part of the user test necessarily. Oh, sorry, usability test. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. I wonder like, if Twitter has run into that same issue of like, oh, I, uh, I know lots of people complain that you can't edit tweets. I always like, when people start suggesting features, I always start to like, try and dial them back to the app Mm -hmm. 
Because they're like trying to solution, come up with solutions for problems. So what I do is like, why do you want to see your credit score here? Like, is it just because yeah. like you've seen it on Mint? Like, do you trust us to give a, like all of your information? Like you already have your information preloaded into Mint. When, when did you first see your credit score on Mint? Like that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think part of given that there has been a recent security breach at one of the three like credit score providers, it was interesting to see that. But what what the particular function that was being tested at that time was making the request to get a range of what their credit score was, and even though it was only three ranges from like that zero to nine hundred range they still wanted to confirm it and have like why not pull this in automatically why do i have to pick from these three huh. and i thought that was really interesting yeah did you get confirmation for for other things that you y'all did yeah i think uh certain assumptions i think we went in with some again as designers to it things that we know maybe are better practices not best practices but just better than than where it is and then I think on the client side, because of their exposure to the product or being in customer service, they had a few assumptions of their own too. So to try to get answers on those, we did get a lot of different things confirmed or confirmed that that wasn't as big of a deal. <laughs> uh, I, I think we got a little bit of both things that we thought were a bigger deal that aren't things that should be a bigger deal that weren't privacy being one of, one of the biggest parts or reassurance to privacy in copy or in visual representation, that was probably the the biggest part that we confirmed that they're going to want to know who can see this and why or why this information is needed. So the more that we can provide there, the better. I was working on a, another app that you know, they had to do a soft credit check and it mm-hmm. was really important for the app to be secure and for us to communicate that. And the way that I just did was with basically an image and some copy. And it wasn't anything like Mm -hmm. above and beyond. And what scared me was like, I know that our team is doing everything possible to make sure it's as secure. But when we did usability tests, like everyone was like, they were like, oh, okay, you're doing it. And I was just like, that's just like me putting an image and some copy down. And you're not like really digging in. And I, when I saw that, I was wondering, like, how many times I might have done that and, like, just been okay with someone saying, hey, I care about security. <laughs> it's kind of funny how just a little bit of copy can go a long way with that and people don't dive any further. Yeah, that's definitely true. But it's like, how, how else are we supposed to, to check that? You know, there's so many different ways, like I I could Google it, but then that's just another resource that's online that (laughs) could be saying something. So it gets into this very Inception-y meta sort of thing. That it does. Inception-y, that's a word, right? Inception-y. I think I've already made up a few words on this podcast, so it's cool. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I'm trying to think of what else from the testing that it was really interesting. I think just the the process in general that we took is a solid process. Like we went in with collecting assumptions y'all wrote out a script tested people and then walked Mm -hmm. away with a list of concrete items to act upon so i think one of the the main reasons that designers at thoughtbot contribute to code is is so that we can start to do some of that like take a lot of the things that you and eric found were some smaller things that are copy changes or some small design changes 
So maybe you could talk about that process of like, once you were done with those interviews, we kind of talked about some of the findings that you had, but like, how do you take action on some of those findings? Like what were the next steps after that? Um, I think that one of the things that we found was like, let's put it all out on the table. Let's look at all of the results of this test. And first, let's try to find similar patterns. So things that maybe more than one tester said, uh, comparison between our low fidelity prototype versus them testing the existing product because it is live already. That is something that also plays into kind of how that is put into action because this is something that's living and breathing that is being used by people and isn't something that's going to have this grand reveal launch. So a lot of that was really first uh, him and I creating those patterns and trying to figure out sort of where things fell, almost like I imagined a thousand post-it notes and that just like got grouped into these different areas. And then from there, we went into not really prioritizing them yet because I think we wanted to make the recommendation to the the client on that, but sort of work with them on that because they also have their own roadmap and things that they're trying to get done from a feature push perspective, um, from a rebrand, all these different other parts that are a part of this. So we sort of created buckets of, of things that allowed for a little bit of flexibility and timeline so that the client also is a part of that since it's their product and, and their timeline. We sort of broke it down into things that are, you know, the copy and code that we can adjust right away. It doesn't change functionality. It just instantly improves the product because of those copy design or really small tweaks. A second one that was sort of a bigger push on general design things that would apply across the app. And then a third that would be like, this is design, but requires that functionality and development side. So we sort of prioritized it in this sort of different way that it wasn't necessarily low, medium, high. It's just, here's the stuff that we can get to right away. Here's when we're going to need to work directly with the dev team. And here's this other stuff that plays into a general design push as a whole that's going to involve marketing and sales and and all the other departments. Cool. Part of that was, I think, bringing in a lot of, you know, you're bringing us in as experts. There's a process to the way that we do things at ThoughtBot, but also keeping in mind that the client has their own timeline and needs and goals. So kind of merging the best of both worlds together. Nice. I feel like most, especially when we're dealing with an established product like that, there's always that balance of short-term gains, like quick things that we can do, and then long-term features that'll you know increase usability or make the product significantly better. But like the cost is significantly higher to those, so there's yeah. always a balance. Absolutely, I'm trying to think of like at that point, it's really just bringing it into the process, like. Is it, you know, cards on Trello or Jira, you know, whatever it is that you're using, I think that's an ideal next step because that helps you take some of those patterns and how we prioritize this or put these into these different buckets, but then actually create the actionable items that it takes to get it done. And that gives you a sense of timeline. Like, is it just a copy change and a logo change? Okay, well, who's approving you know, the design part of that or who's, you know, that's a really bad example. I can't think of a better one (laughs) right now. But when you get to see the tactile, like, what are the steps to get this done? What will the approval look like? Is it going to make it into this release or the next release? Then you really get into the like actual details of when it's going to happen. So that's sort of where we're at now. Cool. 
that whole process is is really fun and doing the research that early on especially having the user input on that uh, i think it's a smashing magazine article about usability testing it's sort of this all-encompassing uh christopher murphy who is on the other side of the pond and and writes and teaches about a lot of this stuff uh, has a really good sentence about this it's like doing a lot of that research and testing early saves a lot of money <laughs> And, I mean, that's time. I mean, that's resources, everything. So I think money is a very all-encompassing term there. But it really does. Ha going into it and doing all of that at the front end really allows to kind of, like, you have your North Star at that point. And then the more testing you do along the way, it just improves the process and improves the product and communication. I mean, everything just gets better and better. Yeah, that's a... Something that like I continually relearn. We had a, a recent project here. It was a short, very short project. They came to us with an Excel spreadsheet that they were using to, to make calculations. And you know, a sales team was already using it. They showed us how they use it really quickly. And I was like, okay, like you already have version one. We're just going to make version two is is just a web app version of this. And they, they had different reasons for it wanting to be a web app and yeah. because they had everything set i was just like okay like you've already tested it like this is solidified we don't have to do any kind of user interviews or like watch people kind of fill out this form because you've already kind of shown us how you've done it and of course like a couple weeks into the project it's like oh no we probably should have done those usability tests like <laughs> sat down concretely with multiple salespeople as they went through that form and like just spending that day, I don't know if it would have, how much time it would have saved, but it would, it would have certainly saved some iteration and made the form more focused. So like the lesson I learned there was like, no matter how concrete something seems like there's always going to be room for improvement. And the way that you figure that out is through doing interviews or usability tests. Yeah. Yeah. And doing them often, I think one of the things when we were testing the existing product, we were trying to squeeze in as much as we could. Obviously, at that point, we're trying to, I guess, not obviously, but just in general, at that point, we were trying to capture as much data as we could. And that's still important. But when it came to testing our low fidelity prototypes, we didn't have to create every single part of both products. At that point, it's really important to focus on the things that you're trying to test, especially that are based off of assumptions, uh, whether positive or negative. So to be able to focus in on those, it's it's really easy to get carried away, especially on a low fidelity prototype, to want to design the entire thing. But writing the script and writing a test that actually has to do with the stuff that you do need answers on is is really important. Especially, yeah. I mean, given if, if it's 30 minutes of time, 45 minutes of time, you have to go through that intro, talk about how there's no wrong answers and that you're not being tested, that the app's being tested, all that sort of stuff takes time. There can be issues with the internet connection or with Hangouts if you're doing this remotely or someone showing up late if it's in person. So focusing it on what you're actually trying to test is so key. Yeah, I, I found that the part of the design sprint, the original design sprint that I've I've always done is the assumptions test table because 
it concretely writes down everything and, and takes a design practice and basically puts it into a scientific method of like, this is our hypothesis. We're going to run run some uh, user interviews to figure out if our hypothesis is correct or not. At the end, we're going mm-hmm. to analyze it and come out with a result. And like, it makes it less wishy-washy, even if some of the things that we're dealing with are feelings. You go into those usability tests or user interview asking specific questions and knowing like if they answer it this way, we're going to be validated or if they answer it this way, we're, we're going to have invalidation and, and like going into it, knowing that beforehand, I think is incredibly important because like before I started doing that kind of thing, I'd go in with a script, but there was never like a concrete like assumption and test and how I know if it's validated or not. And I think it was less clear of like, you know, okay, we saw this issue when they were stumbling across it. Like, it was more trying to figure out what where they were having problems as opposed to us kind of saying, okay, we think there are problems or opportunities here. Let's design around them and see if we're correct kind of thing. And I think one to like add to that too, like with assumptions about seeing if that's correct or not, there's a quantitative and qualitative side to that. So I think some of that can come in from here's assumptions we as designers as the experts coming in can make. This is assumptions that the the client, the team that's been working on this product for a long time can make based off of feedback from using it themselves, feedback from the customer service side. But then there's also the quantitative side. So a lot of that can come from different tools and analytics. Like if there's drop-off points on the page or if they spend a really long time on a page that our goal is to only keep them there for five minutes versus 10 minutes because they can't find something or they give up. So there's like all the analytics tools can be really helpful to form other assumptions based off of numbers. So it's not just sort of all qualitative or personal experience with it as well too. And then you can also set goals that way. I mean, if you're saying your goal is to get someone signed up for a product in under 10 minutes then if that's not happening, you have something measuring that outside of this controlled user test environment. You can test it in the user environment, and then you can improve on it from there. And then because all the analytics are taking care of that sort of thing, you can see if it's actually a goal that you're meeting. But yeah, that's just a random example. <laughs> I know as part of this process, we we dove into existing mixed panel information and data mm-hmm. And that helped us in the beginning of our sprint. Are you doing what you're saying, which is like essentially tracking specific metrics going forward to see if some of the changes that we make are having the impact that we want them to? Yeah, I think that's our goal when we get to certain phases of those three. So that is kind of, yeah, built in. So I'm just jumping ahead. <laughs> it's exciting. It's it's stuff that we want to get to, but yeah, we're we're getting there. Cool. So now I guess we could just talk about Barkthens. Oh, thank goodness. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping we'd get to the conversation. Which Barkthen is your favorite Barkthen? My favorite Barkthens are the chocolate almond Barkthens. Mm. Because, did I, say, did I say chocolate almond? Yeah. I totally meant coconut, coconut almond. almond. 
Yeah, they definitely have chocolate. So for those listening who do not know what bark thins are, <laughs> drop everything. But I mean, take this podcast with you and your earphones or headphones and run to your nearest Whole Foods, probably, and find bark thins. I think they're in the snack aisle. <laughs> they are uh, dark chocolate bark, basically. <laughs> And <laughs> they have different flavors. Some of the flavors include the one I just mentioned, coconut and almond. There's a pretzel flavor. There's a pumpkin seed flavor. I don't know. What are What's your favorite one? I like the uh, coconut almond, too. It's so good. It is really good. Uh, and so, like, why we bring this up is because the Austin office goes through a bag a day. More than a bag a day? Roughly, roughly. <laughs> Last week, Monday, we finished a four-ounce bag and an eight-ounce bag on Monday itself. <laughs> Twelve ounces. And I think you weren't in the office that day. So between three people, we ate four ounces each, which is the size of their smaller bag. That was really sad. <laughs> I took a picture of it. I took the picture of two, two empty Barkin <laughs> bags in the trash. So that was embarrassing. So then we said, we'll try to like ration out the remaining two bags we got for the rest of the week. And they were done by the end of the day, Friday. Uh, we had a little bit more control for the rest of the week. Then this week, we didn't even order more of them until Thursday. So we went three days without parking. Three things, whole days? And I'm really proud of our progress. Yeah. Wow. But I'm proud of us. I think we did really well. I didn't realize that you had gone three whole days without bark thins. <laughs> you did. I didn't even know if it was possible. But then again, I had never had them until I joined ThoughtBot. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm the one who ordered them originally. And like, I don't, I don't eat them nearly as quick as everyone else in the office. <laughs> one bag used to last a while. And it's all of us in the office now just love it. And we kind of. It's dark chocolate. It's healthy for you. And there's coconut and almonds in that. They're all healthy. So. Yeah. It's a good snack. Almonds are really good brain food. Coconut oil has so many different perks. I mean, thousands of perks. It's great for your hair. It's great for your teeth. It's great for your digestion. So good. (laughs) Bark thins are the best. I don't even like chocolate. That's the thing. I don't really like chocolate. You wouldn't that much believe either. it. <laughs> if you looked at my trash can at work, you wouldn't believe it. But I don't like chocolate. But I like bark thins. That's the tagline. They should just have me be their spokesperson. Yeah. It's sort of like the I don't always is it the Dosekis? I don't always drink beer, but when I do I drink bark it thins. It's Dosekis. <laughs> I don't always eat chocolate, but when I do <laughs> I, I only go with bark thins. I'm the most interesting designer in the world. <laughs> oh, no. That's a good... No, I'm definitely not. That's a good good thing to end the podcast on. <laughs> do you want to, before we wrap up, do you want to tell people where they can find you on the internet? Where they can ask you questions? Oh, yeah. Where they can like follow your bark thin obsession? You know, I have not, uh, t- well, I did tweet Barkthins last week, <laughs> but I have not Instagrammed Barkthins on the food. Bl- I have a foodstagram. I hate that word. Why did I say it? <laughs> I meant to say a food-related Instagram account. But people can find me on the internet as Sam Cap almost everywhere on Twitter. I don't talk as much on Twitter as I used to, but if I do, it's usually about CSS things or apps that make me sad (laughs) 
and Bark Thins because I tweeted at Bark Thins last week about how <laughs> obsessed I am with Bark Thins. And then on Instagram, the food one is the Tableau, but it's the underscore Tableau with an X because Tableau stands for table and it also stands for picture. And if you have food on your table and you're taking a picture of it, it's food table picture. Hence the Tableau. <laughs> I'm going to post a picture of Bark Thins today. Nice. This has been episode 54, and we should have show notes at tentative.fm slash 54. You can follow us on Twitter at tentative.fm. You can follow Sam at samcap with a K. You can email us, host at tentative.fm. And if you like or dislike the podcast, feel free to rate us on iTunes and give us no stars or all of the stars. Or all of the bark thins. Feel free to send your bark thins to Sam. (laughs) I think that's it. That's the show. Yeah. We did it. We did it. I'm Derek. I'm Sean. And And we we host host the Bike Shed. Shed. We talk about the projects. Sometimes we read code. It's very exciting. (laughs) The people. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Vida. Hi, Olivier. Thanks for coming on, Sandy. And everything else that influences our lives as developers. Oh, like speed dating, but yes, for exactly. employers. Yes, and I was pretty sure it was going to be bad. And was it? It was bad. So join us every Friday on, on the, the Bike, Bike Shed. Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.